Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today I'm joined by my good friend, Sam Kiley. How's it going, man? Good, man. How's everything? Not bad, not bad, you know. Just uh, still dealing with this uh, lockdown <laughs> situation. which Trying, uh, to, trying to survive? <laughs> yeah, trying to survive. You know, lots of time for uh, watching movies and making podcasts, so trying to stay oh, positive. Yes, yes but, sir. But uh, for every time I have a guest on, I like to kind of start out with asking what was the first horror movie that you watched that scared you as a kid? So last time I had uh, mutual friends, Berto and Sarah on to review something. And I told them that uh, the first scene that scared me as a kid was the original Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. It was directed by uh, Toby Hooper. It came out in the eighties and there's this scene, it's a PG movie. And there's this scene where a guy's looking in a mirror and his face like starts to melt <laughs> and it's just super aggressive and out of left field. Cause it's like, it's a pretty creepy movie, but yeah. then to see something that graphic in a PG movie, like I was, I was not looking in mirrors for a, uh, for a while after that one. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you. I feel you. Um, yeah. For me, do you remember the movie, the haunting? I do not. I haven't it's- seen that. One of those movies where like everybody gets invited to this house. It's like you know a manor, and oh. the manor's haunted. And it's I looked a, at the cast. I didn't it's even a realize. Remake, right, it's a remake of the Haunting in Hill House. I think. Um, it has Liam Neeson. Yeah, Owen Wilson. Uh, Owen Wilson. Um, Virginia. Catherine. Madison. Catherine Zeta Jones. Oh wow, that's a stacked um, cast, huh? Yeah, and there's this scene. I don't remember who it is, but someone's playing the piano and um, there's like strings in it. If you look inside a piano, there's like strings and like, you know, things that kind of make, give it its tone and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And one of the strings broke or the cords and like slit some guy's eye. Oh, geez. And yeah. (laughs) And like that, like scarred me for such a long time. Like I can't even. I couldn't even look at like a guitar or like a, you know piano without thinking like what if that shit snaps, <laughs> and you that, know. I mean, with the example that I had, at least like it's illogical to be scared of that. Your face would never obviously just start melting, but yeah. with that, that's something that could actually happen. <laughs> yeah. like, it's unlikely, but there's a right. possibility that, that shit could actually happen. Which, yeah, if anything that could uh, carry over into adulthood. I know, I know. So that that. That is the first thing that truly scared me. It was that, and it was, I hate to say it, but Thriller. Like, watching Thriller for the first time, <laughs> yeah. and Mike turns into a zombie, that messed mm-hmm. me up. But those two things I can remember, like, vividly as things that really scared me that kind of carried on, but when I was, like, younger, you know? Right. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I I like that those are scares that they scare you, but then some, something that you can kind of grow out of. Yeah, exactly. Whereas I was talking to somebody recently and they're like, they were scarred by it, the original <laughs> it, the miniseries. And they're like, yeah, I still can't look at clowns. And I was just, <laughs> that's, that's not that's good. A rough one. That's scarring. People, I mean, people have trouble with clowns. People yeah. have real trouble with that. But uh, so today you actually picked the film for us yes. to review and I'm excited to talk about it because it's probably one of my favorite horror films of the last, I don't know, almost decade probably. And it's mm-hmm. one that I don't think gets a lot of love or nearly as much as it should. 
so today we're reviewing uh, Sinister, which is directed and co-written by Scott Derrickson. He was the director uh, be behind uh, Exorcism of Emily Rose and Doctor Strange. Uh, and Sinister is currently streaming on Netflix. So Sinister, the quick summary is Ethan Hawke stars as a washed-up true crime writer, Ellison Oswald, who's looking for a fresh start. After moving his family into the house of a grisly murder, he discovers a box of Super 8 films that seem to belong to the killer he's researching. Things go from spooky to hellish as his research uncovers unimaginable new horrors. Uh, so this, again, this is a film that I don't think gets nearly as much love as it should, and it, yeah. It's surprising considering it has such a big name actor in the lead. Right. Yeah, I mean, Ethan Hawke. I mean, what can, what can you say about that guy? Right. Um, he's been in some really good movies. But, you know, I think the thing is he had kind of a a lull in his career in front of screen. I think he went more towards production and, like, producing mm -hmm. stuff. So he's also an author. He was also an author for a period of time, I think. Yeah. So I think – it was like post Ethan, Hawk, like the Ethan Hawke, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. When this movie came out for him and like, he kind of had a resurgence, I feel like after he did this movie, but. Um, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you would this think. Was, this was like one of, I think three horror movies that he did pretty close together. He was in yeah. uh, The Purge. He was in mm. a vampire movie called Daybreakers. Oh, Which is always on Netflix. That. And then obviously Sinister. Right, but uh, this is—I think this is by far the best. And it's, oh yeah, not only is it in part to his performance, but it's mostly because I think of Scott Derrickson. Like this movie has such a distinct feel to it that mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of kind of true crime haunting movies have been able to replicate. Yeah, I agree with that. And it just—I don't know if it's because it feels real. You know what I mean? It feels uh, very gritty. Like I mean, I'm sure we'll get into just how. Ethan Hawke and his wife talk their mm -hmm. conversations alone. You know what I mean? Like the script is very, uh, it feels real. It's very like a, what, how a couple would normally talk or how people would normally talk to each other. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So Scott Derrickson co-wrote it with uh, a writer named Robert Cargill mm -hmm. and both of them were writers first. And so they based a lot of the conversations between uh, Ethan Hawke's character Ellison and his wife, Tracy, who's played by Juliet uh, Rylance. Mm -hmm. uh, they based those on conversations that they'd had with their significant others during the course oh, wow. of their career. Um, and on a second viewing, that's something that I kind of came to appreciate a little more. And because when I first saw the movie, I didn't think much of Ellison's character. I thought he was kind of <laughs> just this prick. But yeah. then you realize that it's more about a flaw in his character and that he's like constantly chasing this fame because his last yeah. book, Kentucky blood was like his big hit, but right. that was his 15 minutes of fame. Cause the reason that he's in this house researching this new case is that he hasn't had a hit in 10 years. Mm -hmm. One of his books he wrote, he got it wrong and a killer went free at one point. And yeah. he's kind of just like so badly chasing this old ideal of how he views himself in his career that, he starts to get away from the things in his life that actually matter, like his family. Yeah. I like how you said that because I noticed, I noticed that relationship with his wife more. And I also noticed how he was more. And I felt bad. Like you said, I felt bad for him and just kind of what he was going through. And there's actually a moment in the movie um, after they have an argument where he's just like on the couch or he's like on a, in a chair and he has like a drink in his hand. Mm -hmm. He has, 
you know, and he's watching uh, one of the interviews he, he did and his wife comes in and like, she feels so bad for him. And like, she's like, just sees that he's just like helpless and like, yeah, it, it, it's, that, that's a rough, see that's that a more scene. this time. It is a very rough scene. They go through like he, a... he keeps returning to watching. And I, it, again, it highlights how flawed his character is and how his character's yeah. inability to like move on with his life is yeah. that he has all of his old uh, book tour or book press interviews mm-hmm. from like late night shows and stuff that he's watching constantly. And it's just like, all right, man, you got, re- yeah. you got some research to do. If you want to write that next book, you got to stop kind of drinking away your sorrows and living in the past. I know. And I remember like one of the arguments they had, he was like, this could be my big shot. Like we could be famous again. And she's like, I don't care about that. And he's like, everybody cares about that. And yeah. you're like, oh no. Yeah. Oh man. But the, I mean, so this is probably the fourth or fifth time I've watched this now since it was mm-hmm. released. And I was blown away by the fact that how uncomfortable the movie's super eight footage is still. Oh yeah. The film uh, intermittently jumps between obviously the, live action but then it also cuts between the super 8 footage that he finds and the mm-hmm. super 8 footage basically is consisting of the murders that he's investigating he doesn't know how they've right. got the house he just finds all the f- super 8 film and the super 8 projector and mm-hmm. each of the super 8 films has a different family being murdered in a more gruesome way yeah. and the w- and they actually shot that on a real super 8 to get Dang. that look to it which mm-hmm. i think is so key to making those scenes feel like they're actually snuff films in a way yeah that, they gotta feel authentic yeah exactly it has that authenticity that i don't know it, it almost feels like you're watching something you shouldn't be mm-hmm. you know how like when you were a kid and you'd be watching <laughs> a movie that on tv like something too violent or whatever yeah you're supposed to be and you're like yo this is some naughty shit i better not get yeah <laughs> it's like looking that. over your shoulder every two seconds like oh man <laughs> yeah exactly it's like that but it's like yo, if somebody walks in they might think i'm into some stuff that i'm definitely not I into know. I know. And it's, it's funny because I kept, even though I know what happens, I kept mm-hmm. finding myself thinking throughout the movie that one of the kids or the wife was going to walk in and see it. Even though I've seen the movie a million times, like I right. still had that feeling like, oh, like he should not, he shouldn't be watching this. Like he definitely should probably, you know, burn it, which I mean, he does. Um, but yeah, the Super 8 film was, it's weird because watching it, I've only watched it like four times maybe. But this time, like I appreciated the cinematography throughout. But even within those those films, the way they're shot, like shot from the trees. I, I, my favorite is the second family that um, I think gets locked in the car and then end up getting burnt oh, alive. Yeah. I love how that was shot, just because like you're watching from like the bottom of a hill and you just see the guy and there's like a normal. It's like nothing's happening mm-hmm. and it just feels normal. You know what I mean? And then it's such a drastic switch to them all being like knocked out in a car. Mm-hmm. And even just the shot, shot where you see the wife first and then like you see the kid's legs. So you're like, oh, like the kid, one of the kids got it. And then you see the dad in the back and you're just like, oh, this is not good. But the way they shot that and he kind of goes around, then he just like pauses and then like he, th- he throws whatever he throws at the car, it blows up. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I re- like I enjoyed all those shots and like the footage, especially in each uh, murder scene, you should, yeah. I guess you could say. I don't know that the film works without those key scenes also. I think it's just so, such a big part of being unsettling throughout. And this yeah. idea that 
he's going to keep finding new films or he's going to keep revealing new films of different mm-hmm. murders that are in these like unimaginable grisly ways. Yeah. It's just super unsettling and uncomfortable the whole time. Yeah. And I think that that really ties into the film and that the atmosphere of all the scenes, even when he's just in the house alone at night by himself or right. when everybody's <laughs> asleep and the lights are off, yeah. you just assume something's going to come out of the corner of a room and jump out at him. And that was, I mean, what, what the one thing I will say, one last thing I will say about the 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 footage also is the music. Yes, the music. I don't know what who was, was screaming and singing and doing what. <laughs> that was my next but, point. I was going to bring up. That's great. Yeah, th- that like added so much to the just uncomfortable nature of each scene, and like you felt what he was feeling because like mm-hmm. he watches it and you just like. He's just like taking a swig of his whiskey, you know what I mean? Like he just like can't yeah. even bear it. And the music, you're just like, oh no, like this is this is really bad. This just feels you feel like how he feels, kind of. You just feel mm-hmm. uncomfortable. Yeah. So the soundtrack was uh, composed by a guy named Christopher Young, uh, and he used a combination of I would call it like tribal haunting music or something because mm-hmm. like you get those kind of like drum beats, and then you hear yeah. like little uh, distant voices that are like chanting something in the mm-hmm. background and i think that that really helps to because it's it's a soundtrack that is immediately strange because it's yeah. kind of unlike anything you've ever heard it sounds like it's a bunch of different combinations of things put together mm-hmm. and so it kind of adds this uh i would call it like angelic chaos to scenes that are it happening does. because the mute because especially your example of the uh super eight footage when the family gets burnt alive mm-hmm. like you don't hear them screaming you don't no. hear like a a uh, I don't know the word or something the type of music that you would hear in like a jump scare where there's like a right. high shriek or something like that to kind of like unnerve you it mm-hmm. just has this kind of like calm but very strange tribal music that's playing and it, it yeah really ties into the idea that later in the film when we learn that Bagul this pagan deity is hundreds or thousands of years old that music mm-hmm. I think helps to convey that yeah it does in a way that music doesn't always convey much about the killer but i think yeah. it really does in this movie and crafting this kind of new id not ideology but identity around this uh this figure right yeah I, I i agree with that completely it it gives you that sense of this weird like you don't really know exactly like it's a thousand hundred thousand years old like mm-hmm. could be just it's but it's really just a timeless thing you know what i mean and like yeah it just it just was uncomfortable and i don't know how you would even think how do they think to make music to make that music because it seems perfect almost it seems like that's exactly the kind of music you would need to pull off that scene to make you feel you know Mm -hmm. so that was i was thinking about that a lot last night like how do they even because you have the regular soundtrack right you have the regular music that goes on throughout the movie that's more of the like you said like kind of getting you giving you suspense and like, you know, something's going to happen. But then with those scenes, it's like you said, there's no suspense. You're just kind of in it, you know, and you kind of have to just like, you have to take that. You have to take that scene and you have to just sit there with him, you know, Mm -hmm. and watch it. So. Yeah. So getting into jump, I'm jumping a little bit ahead to some of my uh, half-assed research, but so the way that they actually made some of these, um, some of these tracks were as they mm-hmm. took ambient tracks from other bands that are like Norwegian black metal 
which I'm not, <laughs> I'm not familiar with. But if you asked me what Norwegian black metal sounded like, I would say some shit exactly like, like that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly like that. Um, but I think it's very telling again that the soundtrack is something that is not easily identifiable. And yet for no. me, it becomes such a staple of what makes this movie so great. And it really is, yeah. I think, one of the best horror soundtracks of the last decade in that, especially that track where it's like the drumming, it's kind of mm-hmm. like soft drumming, but it, it just sounds so sinister in a way yeah. that, again, makes sinister uh, continually creepy no matter how many times I've watched it now. Mm-hmm. But uh, for the Super 8 segments, which one is the most memorable for you? Because there's a lot. There is a lot. Um, I would say the one that, and just because drowning for me is like, uh, like I just you would never want, like you just don't want to drown. I mean, burning yeah. alive too is horrible, but like yeah. something about drowning, man. That like I just I'm like, ugh. Yeah. And you know the one, this that one where it's all the people in the 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 beach chairs or whatever, the pool chairs just mm-hmm. tied up, and just one by one just getting pulled into the pool, still alive. Well, it's so grimy. It's just very grimy and grungy. It's not that they're like, because everybody's getting drugged. We find out that yeah. a ghoul, basically, he's called like the eater of children. He's basically mm-hmm. manipulating the family's kids into killing them for him. He doesn't actually right. kill anybody himself. But so in that, you have to think about how would a kid be able to do that? A kid wouldn't be able to drag mm-hmm. people around. So they no. drug them and then they put cinder blocks on the pool chairs to win. Yeah. And it's just like, there's an extra kind of like sickening gut punch to every single execution mm-hmm. in a way that it's not just somebody getting stabbed or it's not somebody getting thrown down a flight of stairs or whatever. It's yeah. There's it's a, there's a method to it. It's pre it is premeditated to the max. Yeah. To the max. And, and something it, something in the film that I didn't really appreciate uh, until watching it recently was the idea of using kids. Mm-hmm. is so terrifying because it attacks this idea that we're all very safe and comfortable with family members and yeah. whatnot. And so this like paranoia that gets put into you once you realize what's been happening. Mm-hmm. And just, when that first girl climbs down the tree, you're just like, yeah. oh shit. And she jumps on the body's leg. <laughs> yeah. And swinging around. Swinging around. Like, you're like, oh. Yeah. 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 But that's, yeah, for me, I think the one that always makes me jump without question is the lawnmower. Oh, yeah. Like, and that's one of the ones where the soundtrack is more what you would assume, where it's like a a high shriek Mm -hmm. as soon as you see that head come into focus. But it's just so gnarly and just so unexpected, even though you know something horrible is going to happen. Every time the Super 8 footage comes up, we're going to see somebody get killed in the terrifying way but at the Mm -hmm. same time i think it speaks to the overall pacing of the first half of the movie and yeah for me i think this movie's first half is phenomenal and Mm -hmm. i think it's the second half i'm not as i'm with you on that i mean Uh, and we can kind of detail that yeah and i think that most of the reason why is the investigatory stuff at the very beginning and kind of getting a lay of the land because we don't really know the scope or the range of the haunting. We're still kind of yeah. exploring that. And I think the more that gets revealed, the more it hurts the scares in a way. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Because you want to have some type of like not knowing, right? right? And then it's like the more detailed it gets, the more you kind of 
it becomes the same song and dance. Like once you yeah. get close to the end, you're like, all right, well, I mean, we know what's going to happen. You see where this is going now. Like, obviously, you know, and once it's that, revealed. Yeah. And the second half definitely becomes more jump scary. Like yeah. there's the two jump scares with uh Bagul where he sticks, where his face gets right in front of the camera. And mm-hmm. those two scares, they felt like something that, a studio exec was like, Hey, you know, it'd be really good in this moment, <laughs> like a jump scare. And it's, yeah. just like, it's so at odds with the creativity and the disturbing nature of the yeah. first half of the film that to have that in there kind of was disappointing. Cause I mean, one of the earliest scares in the movie that is still terrifying to me is the scene where um, Ethan Hawke's son has the night terror oh my god comes out of the box it comes out of the box backwards and then he starts screaming bloody murder like that's terrifying to me exactly and i love that one because it's like it's not in line with what's happening in the movie like or like what's happening with bagul it just kind of is a part of it adds to the scariness but it's not a part of that it's it's its own thing it's its own scare you know um that was actually oh, him in the big... bushes. The son oh, in general. Okay. That was a creepy. He's just, <laughs> he's just, you know what I mean? Like, he's just creepy. Yeah, he does have a creepy kid. Yeah. Uh, that cardboard box scene is actually inspired by Derrickson's own son, has night terrors. And he uh-huh. said that sometimes he would just wake up and just scream like that. And I, I, I don't know. As somebody that's like, hmm, do I want kids in the future? I, I know. Like, I sure as shit don't want to have one if they're going to be no. screaming bloody they're murder. They're going to be screaming bloody murder and drawing on all the walls. Yeah, I don't know about <laughs> that one. Yeah. Yeah, they gave that kid some uh some liberties with their Freedom. with their room. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about you, man. I took a sharpie to the wall once as a kid. It didn't end well. <laughs> no. <laughs> and my parents en- encouraging me to keep that shit up. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, but I think as soon as the movie starts to move away from, I think when the focus shifts to Bagul more, mm-hmm. it almost becomes less scary in a yeah. way. Because, uh, don't get me wrong, there's two scenes with him that I think are two of the creepiest scenes in the movie is when you realize that Bagul, you find out that Bagul is actually like a thing. Because in yeah. the beginning of the movie, we don't know who's committing these murders. And yeah, then we exactly. find out who he is and we find out that he is in every single one of the Super 8 films hiding right. like in a corner or something like that. Like yeah. there's the knife, there's the knife murder where mm-hmm. he's standing in a doorway in the back. And then yeah. there's the one in the pool where he, yeah, does a freeze, he does a freeze frame on it. And then you just see Bugul like looking right at the camera and yeah. it's just like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Like super creepy. And probably the best one with him, I think is when uh, Ethan Hawke is on the phone with, uh, the oh, deputy. and the computer moves. Yeah, and the face turns and just looks at him. But it's the way that that's framed up. I think is so perfect. Yeah, because it's not like super close up, and it's not supposed to make you jump. Mm-hmm. But it, the way it's framed out almost, and it's such a subtle movement, yeah. it takes you like half a second to register what's happening. And then you're looking. You're like, he just moved. Yeah, exactly. he definitely just moved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, and to go back to it also, I, I actually appreciated those kinds of subtle scares because even with the, the knife um, killing, mm-hmm. did you notice that you didn't actually see, they, they did a really 
interesting job of showing you what happens without like directly showing you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So like with one of them, I'm pretty sure like you could see it in his glasses. You weren't looking at the screen yeah, anymore. Yeah, it was the re a reflection. You see the reflection. And then like I, the one with the kid, I don't even think you really see it happen because the focus then goes back on Ethan Hawke, who's like drinking, you know, because the kid's about to get his neck chopped. But like, I really, like you said, those like subtle kind of scares that kind of just, it gives you just enough. It doesn't do too much. There's no mm -hmm. overkill because, you know, sometimes it could become a slasher movie then. You're just like, well, this is kind of, this is overkill. But they just had really artistic, I'll say, ways of kind of showing you these layers, these scary layers to the movie. Yeah, so originally they toyed around the idea of making this PG-13. Um, really? And it got an R rating despite there being like no sex, there's barely any mm -hmm. swearing, and there's almost no blood in the movie. Mm -hmm. And to your... And, so I think that R rating obviously is because of the dark subject that matter. That makes this so much is, sense. This idea that it's about kids. And mm -hmm. I think you're right. I think that if this movie was a lot bloodier, it wouldn't really add anything to it because it's no. not, that's not really the purpose of the movie. The purpose is how disturbing this is and uncovering the mystery behind it. And especially like mm -hmm. the reveal when you find out that it's not some guy, it's this guy that basically possesses kids to do his biddings for him. Like, yeah, it's infinitely more disturbing when it's a kid doing these horrible things that we've been watching the whole movie. Exactly. Um, and also something that I didn't realize until recently that it was not originally supposed to be R-rated. I like that it's R-rated because you you assume that the worst is going to happen. Like you, mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like if it's PG thirteen, you have certain expectations for like the ceiling. You know the ceiling exactly. Yeah, you know the ceiling and while this movie doesn't hit the ceiling in terms of like gore, blood or scares necessarily, uh -huh. I like that there is no ceiling because you have this, that's the idea that anything can happen. Yeah. It leaves the door open. Yeah. And <laughs> Wide I mean, open. I think that that is something that really speaks to, especially like my ability to rewatch this movie so many times, even though mm -hmm. I've seen it and I know what happens, it's this, it still has this idea that, or this tone that anything can happen. Yeah. That's what I, I felt. I just love that. That's what I felt last night. I was just like, man, <laughs> it was the scene with the sun in the box before that started when like you hear noises and you're just like, oh shit, like what's going to happen? I know it's going to happen, but just waiting on the suspense and just like that feeling you get, which is hard to come by with movies that you've seen before. That's why like, I'm always a little bit reluctant to like watch a scary movie more than once because mm -hmm. I feel like if I know it's going to happen, but this movie is one of those where like, I still kind of like shut my blinds and stuff <laughs> during the oh, movie. Yeah. I was like shutting my blinds and like, kind of like, you know, <laughs> I had, well, I mean, I, I rewatched this last night uh, and the sun was just starting to go down. So I like hung up blankets over my windows mm -hmm. just so I could block out anything that was coming through. And I got like 45 minutes in the movie and I was like, Damn man, I wonder if that sun's still up. Like, <laughs> need some light in here. Like yeah. it's just, it really is this very, oppressive kind of darkness that lingers yeah. with that movie and it's just such a for me like it's such a disturbing concept like the idea that it is. people that you love could be manipulated and not even you don't realize until it's too late until you're looking mm -hmm. at the bottom of a coffee mug and there's that green goo floating in the just bottom coming out your mouth yeah, yeah exactly um and that yeah. idea that like you, you have to keep an eye on everybody at all times yeah exactly it's an uneasy feeling, especially if you like are in a family, like you have a, a bigger family or like just, you know, you're around a family. You kind of like start looking at people a little different. Like. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, yeah. One thing that I really love about the ending too is, well, for starters, they move back to their old house. Their old house is right. shit. That's exactly what me, like, I was watching it with Ben, my brother. And yeah. he was like, wait a minute. Like, so they got money. Like, they yeah. got money, money. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck are they moving to Mumford, Pennsylvania for? <laughs> Some for little a ass house. house. Yeah. yeah. Like, he could have So they're that. not doing that bad. That's what we should say. <laughs> right. Yeah. Basically lives in a mansion. Like, mm-hmm. oh, that's that a Kentucky, mansion for sure. That Kentucky blood money was nice. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, the thing that I really love about the ending and how fucked up it is, is that. This all basically stems from his actions. Everything yeah. that happens is his fault. Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, it, it begins when he finds the Super 8 footage and he has that moment where he calls the police and then he just hangs up. Mm-hmm. He realizes like, this is my break. But uh, pause for a sec. 911 automatically calls you back, by the way. Exactly. Or they sh- and if you don't, they show up. Yeah, exactly. They show up. It's not, they're not just like, oh, somebody called and asked for the police and then hung up. Because yeah. like no. once you say it's an emergency, it's an emergency, you know? Right. Yeah. But, uh, so he decides that he's not going to involve anybody else for his own right. kind of selfish means. Mm-hmm. And then throughout, he doesn't talk to his wife about any of the haunting shit that's happened. And then he moves them back out of this house, which speeds up the killer's timeline. And he also destroys the, uh, the Super 8, well, big air quotes. Just, he destroys, yeah. yeah, he burns <laughs> the Super 8 film, which, of course, regenerates. And it, mm-hmm. it essentially releases Bagul's power to, like, its maximum, uh, maximum threshold. Yeah. And so, like, all of his decisions, his fate is entirely in his hands. And yet, at the end of the movie, like, you fucked up, dude. I don't know what to tell you, man. You thought exactly. you were with these spirits, and it's like they ended up playing you. It is exactly what it is, dude. Like you just gotta live with the consequences at that point or die with the consequences. Yeah. I liked I liked the ending because of that. I felt like you know what's weird? I, I had the Lord of the Rings ending thought with that movie. Because you get like four like closeout scenes within that movie where they could have just ended it. And then mm-hmm. they kind of like keep going, but I kind of appreciated it because you're it's it's giving you closure on everything that happened in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. You're yeah. getting the closure shot of just the box, and you'll know that that box is always going to be there, no mm-hmm. matter what. It's going to keep happening, you know. You get the 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 closeout with the girl, and she, you know she sees the other children, and they like you know they're on screen, and she's like looking at them, and like she she's like she's joined the club now. You get that shot. Mm-hmm. You get the shot that's like on the Super Eight, except for it's it's in it's in the actual movie where you see everybody tied up and they're on the ground. So like you get all these like closer shots, which I thought was pretty cool. But then like I was like, okay, like I felt like seeing I felt like seeing too much of the kids took away from it a little bit. Yeah, you know what I mean. And then you see the makeup they're wearing, and you're kind of like, well, this is kind of hokey, you know? Yeah. I, so that again, that's probably the main element of the second half of the film that I'm not a fan of. And I don't think this movie needed to be in almost two hours. It's no, it clocks in at an hour and 50. This movie could have easily been 15 minutes shorter, probably. Yeah. And I think that's a great example is the kids. And then you see like their, their makeup where their faces are kind of cracked. Yeah. Um, like the whole segment where he's hearing things around the house. Mm-hmm. And we realize that every time he hears a floorboard creak, there's actually like a spirit of one of the kids running around. Like mm-hmm. that whole sequence, it didn't really need. 
Yeah, they. I mean, I, I get why they did it because like it kind of looks cool, but it wasn't necessary. Right. And, the, think... and that, up to that point, the movie wasn't that kind of movie where it was like exactly. all of a sudden you have these like people popping out of shadows and stuff mm-hmm. like that wasn't. Right. And I think yeah. that's what, again, the second half, there's more of an emphasis on jump scares, which is not what made the first hour of the movie so compelling mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And so uh, intense. And then by that point, when you start seeing, I think if they wanted to do that scene where he's see, where you see the spirit kids in the background, they didn't yeah. have to have like four or five of them. Like you could right. have two instances of that and we got it. And it didn't need to be a five minute like right. thing because it was like five minutes of the movie. Yeah. Um, I would have appreciated something a little more subtle mm-hmm. and not to say that I wanted them to put more super eight segments in there. Cause I think that has the perfect amount of super yeah. eight segments, like anything more than that. I think it kind of would have been just beating it over the head and they actually right. did cut another super eight segment. Um, but they, I read in it or in the commentary, they say they thought that it was too disturbing for the movie. But I was like, the whole thing is fucking disturbing. Like, yeah. how, disturbing? Like, <laughs> how much worse did they say what it was, what was happening? Or they don't? So it was supposed to be the family, a family was, because it's all about the seasons. Right. Because they had like a summer one, and then I think there was a fall one. Um, and so this one was supposed to be like a family got dragged out into the woods and they were like freezing to death. Oh. And that was like the basis for it. And then something obviously horrible has to happen to them after that. Um, That's creepy. It sounds like yeah, it'd be great. I mean, Maybe if they we had had that instead of another one, like I think the knife, the knife one was a little tame compared to the other ones. Exactly. The other yeah. ones were just like, "Holy shit, I should not be watching this." Yeah. Um, but yeah, were there uh, were there any other scenes in this that uh, you really enjoyed, even on a rewatch? Yeah. So the cinematography, I enjoyed the cinematography so much more yeah. this time around. I never really paid attention to it, and there was a scene in particular where he's sleeping on the couch and it goes from night back to day. And you have the shot where like, you can see the sun kind of in the corner and it's going up. Mm -hmm. And just like that, that for, to me, I was like, Oh, this is, that was an amazing shot. And my brother was like, what? Like, well, you never see, you never see movies transition into day like that. It's night and then it's day. Or you get the outside shot where you see the sun come up, but it was just cool that they kind of, they had just had it. You had the sun in the corner of the of the window. Just the way they did that, I thought was amazing. And yeah. the office, movie, like most sorry, office what? shots. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Okay, most office on. shots were pretty cool. They just mm-hmm. right them in a dark light. Certain things were highlighted in the office. Certain things weren't. So I really appreciated kind of how things were shot. Yeah, I was gonna say the lighting in this movie is really well done. Yeah, especially like the handling of darkness. In a lot of ways, darkness in most horror movies can come off as just be, you can't see shit. So you're just like, this is kind of annoying. Whereas in this, I feel like, again, it's very, it's oppressive in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. And you see little bits of light in other places. Like at one point he uses the camera, uh, the light on his digital camera as a light source. And then you can see just like little flickers of light in the background or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's, Again, it's this idea that there's this kind of evil in the house. And I know that sounds hokey, like the evil spirit, but it really does, it's evil portrayed in a way that feels real. In a lot of ways, it doesn't feel, even though we find out Bagul is this uh, ancient deity, it doesn't feel hokey, like black magic or anything like that. We don't really know why he even came about originally. Yeah. So it's this idea that 
like they didn't do some ritual or whatever at the beginning of the movie to summon him or something. It's just mm-hmm. you got in his path, his killing path, and yeah, once you get in, you can't get out. Can't get out now. How did you feel about Bagul? Like just like the design. So the, it's funny they actually found the design for Bagul off of a Pinterest post. <laughs> they were just like searching deities or something like that, and mm-hmm. they found the. Uh, an artist that drew that and they paid him like 500 bucks for it, which seems cheap. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, it's funny considering the movie, uh, they paid him 500 bucks for that and the movie only cost him $3 million to make apparently, which is insane to me. Yeah. The movie went insane. on to make 87 million. It's safe to crazy. say they, they made some money back just yeah. a little bit. But uh, to your, to your question, I, I'm conflicted. I think mm-hmm. originally, like as little as we see of him in those first few frames, I like. Yeah. The more that I see him, though, he just looks like one of the band members from Slipknot to me. So I'm just <laughs> yeah. like, he looks exactly like one of the guys from Slipknot. So I'm just like, okay. He looks like what's his face from uh, Saw? Like he just looks like that, but like a little bit taller and he can walk. And j- uh, uh, jigsaw? jigsaw. Yeah. Like the, the face is a little bit like there's some similarities to like the face and the black hair and it's like white. Yeah, the long, then, like, the long hair and the, the uh, like trench coat, it's just, it screams yeah. something out to me. And every time I'm just like, huh. And he was like wearing a suit at one point. It was weird. Yeah. It was weird. So and that also, took me out of it. Yeah, the, uh, the close-ups of his face during those jump scares too. Again, like they couldn't have scrounged up a little more money for some better makeup. I didn't think, yeah. that the, I don't think that his mask is very creepy, like that close in your face. Right. Yeah, like you said, it, it's the less we saw of him, the more... It it the the better it was just because yeah. it keeps that air of you know mystery and not really knowing what what is it you know what is mm-hmm. he you know yeah exactly um, did you <laughs> did you ever see the sequel I I thought about it it's on Netflix yeah, yeah it's on Netflix as well it's streaming currently have you um, I got about I think I've gotten twenty minutes into that movie twice oh no and, and then just tapped out because for me so. Uh, Ethan Hawke was going to be in it, but then bailed on that. Um, it was written by Scott Derrickson and um, see the writer's name. Robert. He was going to be in it. Hmm? Yeah. He was going to be in that. Oh no no no! Sorry, he was going to be in the Super Eight segment. Oh okay. Sorry, okay. he wasn't. I was like, that, nah, damn. Gotta, they took that. That took a turn. Yeah, it came back to life. Quick reincarnation. No big deal. But. Uh, yeah, so the original writers came back, and then the deputy from mm-hmm. the first one, who's played by James Ransom, um, who's in It Chapter Two, yeah, was uh, gonna. He's in it actually. Okay, and he's investigating the murders. He basically picks up where uh, Ethan Hawke's research ended. Oh, and so he finds a new family that I forget how because it's been so long since I tried watching it. They get into Bagul's kill streak somehow but immediately it, ha- it focuses on the things that i didn't like about the original where it shows all the dead kids like right from the jump yeah so we see the spirit kids and then the woman that he's trying to help has children and the children there's all these scenes early on with the spirit kids and her kids mm-hmm. like interacting and having conversations and the spirit kids are trying to ma- manipulate her kids that are still alive oh, man it's all the elements of this movie that I didn't like in the original one, but for mm-hmm. 90 minutes in the sequel. 
so I would pass on that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, we did way of saying pass. Yeah. I mean, sequels for her horror movies sometimes are good. Sometimes they're not, but like, again, that movie just, it's so good on its own. And then yeah. I just don't know why you would want to, you know, continue on. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to imagine that a $3 million movie making 87 million. It's kind of hard yeah. not to imagine a studio is going to pressure you into making a sequel, even if you're not yeah. directly involved in it. Um, Cash cow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think you're right. I, it doesn't really diminish the original. Cause again, I've seen the original now five times probably, and I still enjoy mm-hmm. it every time. But the idea that you would continue that story, like where else can it go? Yeah. That, that it already hasn't like nothing would ever be as shocking as the first one was. Cause right. Again, the Super 8 footage is super sh- is shocking every time I watch it, and it never really mm-hmm. loses its impact. But the idea that you would be able to give us something that just keeps doing that is basically just beating a dead horse at that point. Yeah. Especially when it's devoid of all the tension and tone of the original, and it gets right into the over-the-top supernatural stuff. And then there's even this like melodrama where the, the mother and her children are on the run from an abusive spouse. Or something like that. And it's just like, yeah, this is just not interesting at all and very generic. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't sound great. Yeah. I probably won't ever watch no. that. You're good. You can test on that. <laughs> but uh, if you don't have any other kind of last minute scenes that you want to mention, we could uh, wrap up. Yeah. That's, that's about it for me. Yep. All right. Well, I appreciate yeah. the opportunity to t- uh, chat about Sinister. It's a movie that. I feel like I've gotten kind of annoyed or I'm coming off as annoying to a lot of my friends because I'm keep telling everybody to, that they have to watch this the first time. And I kind of mm-hmm. want to be there to see their reaction because <laughs> oh, I mean, uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's one of those movies where it's just like, it's just, it hits hard every single time, no matter how many mm-hmm. times I've seen it. And I, I can't imagine what it's like watching it for the first time. Yeah. I can't imagine again. either, but it's certainly uh, one of the most memorable horror mil- movies I think of the last probably decade. I can't think of anything. I mean, it came out in 2012 in the last eight years. I can't think of anything that has been so profoundly disturbing and kind of came out of nowhere uh, in a lot of ways. Came out of nowhere. You just wouldn't expect Ethan Hawke, but right. I guess because he was doing those movies, he had like that phase where he was doing mm-hmm. all those types of movies. Um, yeah, I, I agree to, with you. One of the things that I also appreciated more is how relatively unknown a majority of the actors are. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Ethan Hawke, especially Ethan Hawke. Um, and then you have Fred Thompson who plays the sheriff who was on, yeah. I'm pretty sure he was, a, uh, he was like a figure on Law and Order. He was for decades or something like that. Um, he, he had a long What's run. his face? Um, no, not the sheriff. He was the um, professor, right? Is that what you're talking about? No, that's, uh, that's Vincent um, from Daredevil. I forget. Vincent the professor? Dur- yeah, Vincent Dur- I, I forget his last name. Because he was also on Alano. He was on oh, one of those shows for a long he time. He was on one of the other ones. That's right. Yeah. He also um, had like a long stint. Yeah. Dang. Uh, well, so there you go. You had these guys that were relatively well-known, but nobody was on the same level as Ethan Hawke. And mm-hmm. I kind of appreciated that his wife wasn't somebody super famous and his kids yeah. were p- kids that were like super famous just because it helped kind of ground what was happening in a way. Mm-hmm. And it obviously allows him to be the main focus. Yeah. But that was something that I really appreciated on a rewatch. But uh, yeah, anybody that hasn't seen Sinister yet should definitely check it out. And it's definitely uh, streaming, check it out. streaming on Netflix currently. 
But uh, thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to chat. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Anytime, man. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Daily Horror Habit podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service. And follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram or at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.